of you, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited about this message. I know during our time of worship, it was, it was you encouraged. Think of something that you want to praise God for. Think of something that He's done in your life to praise Him for. Now that's great. But I also want you to think of something that's an obstacle in your life. I want to think of you to ask you to think of something that's a difficulty in your life that you really wish wasn't there. Maybe there's an obstacle in your life that you don't know what to do with. I want you to think about that for a minute because I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about obstacles because as you know right now we're in this series that we began the year with called You Do You. And again, that's a series you don't expect to talk about in church. You don't expect to say, you do you in church. But actually, I think that's a brilliant tagline. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to focus on you doing you. Because ultimately, for you to do you means that you become authentic and be the person who you're created to be. That's our desire and our goal is to understand who did God create us to be and how do we do that. See, each of us do have this longing and desire to be authentic. None of us like pretending we're somebody else. None of us like to try to imitate somebody else. We don't like doing that. We want to be authentic. But we all know to be authentic takes, takes incredible risk. Because if you're going to be fully loved, you have to be fully known. And to be fully known and fully loved, that means you have to disclose some information about yourself. And sometimes we know that can be met with rejection. So oftentimes we say it's easier just to pretend I'm somebody else. But part of this whole series and the reason we're talking about being authentic is so we can begin this year walking in the identity that God has for us. That we can be the people that God has truly called and created us to be. But sometimes in order to do that, we have obstacles out and challenges in front of us. So today we're going to look at Joshua 3 that Jerry read for us. See, I love this story. It's not just a story. It's not just, just information, but it is a visual picture of how God wants to move in our lives. So we're going to spend some time on Joshua 3. There's probably one obstacle that all of us have, that all of us share together. And that obstacle is negative self-talk. Some people call it your inner critic. I think a lot of you know what I mean when we talk about negative self-talk. That's that voice inside of your head that likes to remind you of your limitations. It likes to remind you of the failures that you've done in the past. That voice of that inner critic likes to tell you everything that you did wrong in the past. It likes to remind you of the mistakes. It'll even go back to fifth grade to remind you of things that you've done wrong. It reminds you that you don't fit in. It reminds you that you'll never succeed and be successful or that you'll never find peace in your life. See, at the end of the day, the whole goal of that inner critic is to keep telling you that you're not good enough. See, the psychology profession will tell us that there's such a thing as positive self-talk. There's a positive self-talk. That that's what happens when you're in good and loving and healthy relationships, that people affirm you and love you. That's what happens when you're a kid and you're in a school and you have good teachers and the teachers love you and support you and your parents support you. You come away with all these good impressions that you have positive self-talk, but what happens to many people is you live your life and you end up with more negative self-talk than positive self-talk. So what do you do about these things? 
What do you do when your life seems to be more controlled by negative experiences versus positive experiences? Some of you remember the old-fashioned watches. You had to wind them up on the side. Didn't charge them. You wound them up. I remember those watches when I was a kid because it was fun to pop the back of the watch off and to look inside at the mechanics of a watch. And you might remember you looked in the watch and there's all these little gears. You're kind of like, there's a lot of gears in here just to turn these little hands on a watch. And you looked at that watch and you wonder which, which gear, like does which one's first, which one's second? How does that work? You wind it up. And I think that's what negative self-talk is. It's a bunch of these little gears that are operating on the inside of us and you have no idea which one's first, which one's second. You have no idea how it all starts, but you know the triggers that happen to you that wind you up. And a lot of us live with that experience. It just feels like we just have that watch that's constantly dictating the words inside of our head. And see, that cycle needs to stop. And how do you stop that cycle? See, for the Israelites, they were a group of people, they were very familiar with negative self-talk. See, on the one hand, they were such a unique people. On the one hand, they're God's chosen people. God loved the Israelites. He called them. He created them. And God's goal with the Israelites is that he would be such a loving father to them that the other nations would look at the Israelites and say, wow, I want to have a relationship with a God like that. It was an evangelistic thrust that God would be like, look how good I treat the Israelites. And other nations would say, I don't want to follow my God. I want to follow the God of the Israelites. Look how good he takes care of them. Look how much he loves them. That was God's whole goal. So the Israelites had this unique relationship with God. But then on the other hand, the Israelites were really good at disobedience. They were really good at walking away from God. Here on the one hand, God is blessing the Israelites. Next thing you know, the Israelites are openly sinning against God. So the Israelites had this such a unique relationship with God. On one hand, God loved them and he cared for them. On the other hand, the Israelites rebel. So when you look at the story of the Israelites, it's either God's blessing the Israelites or the Israelites are walking away from God and we always look at the dynamics of that relationship. So here in the book of Joshua, the Israelites are now on the camped on the border or camped on the river of the Jordan River and they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. See, this promised land was promised to their ancestors. And 40 years earlier, their ancestors stood at the exact same spot on the side of the Jordan River, ready to cross over, but they started grumbling, they started complaining, and they thought, we could never cross over. Their negative self-talk kicked in, and they said, we could never cross over. God would never open a way for us to do this. There's too many obstacles when we get into the promised land. So you know what? Let's just stay in the wilderness. And God honored the request of the people with their lack of faith. He said, okay, you don't want to cross over. You just stay in the wilderness. And we'll just wait for you all to die. And then the next generation's going to cross over. So this whole new generation's ready to cross over. Joshua's their leader. Joshua's the only survivor of the previous generation who had enough faith to believe that they could cross over into God's promises. So God preserved Joshua's life for this strategic moment that he would lead the next generation across the Jordan River into the fullness that God had for them. See, it was never a question of would God lead them or would God divide divinely intervene or would God give them faith the question always was would the Israelites 
respond to what God was doing and actually follow God into the promised land. So today I want to look at the instructions that God gave to the Israelites. See, if the Israelites were going to be the people that God created them to be, they were going to need to listen to the voice of God. There was no strategy in the human mind to get them across the Jordan River. Is either God was going to do it or it wasn't going to happen. See, what the Israelites needed more than just a bridge to get into the Jor- across the Jordan, they needed their lives to be transformed. And that's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I love how this story starts out in the first chapter of Joshua. God is affirming Joshua and saying, yes, you are my chosen leader. Yes, everything that you do is going to be successful. Yes, I'm going to bless you. And it's beautiful because every promise that God made to Joshua, he makes to every single follower of Jesus. Because Jesus is the new Joshua. And as we follow Jesus, we get the things that Jesus promised to us. And Jesus will fight on our behalf. And that's the beautiful story of the book of Joshua because it is written to each and every one of you. So the first chapter starts with God affirming Joshua and saying, yeah, you're going to get in. Joshua had a tough life. Very tough life. See, Joshua, he was part of the spy, one of the spies that went into the promised land 40 years earlier. He went into the promised land. And he came back. And he said, we can do it. We can do it. That's a beautiful land that has milk and honey and fruits and vegetables. Yeah, let's go for it. God will fight for us. And the other spies, they said, no, no. Giants are too big. So they didn't cross over. Poor Joshua, he was stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because the lack of faith that his friends had. Poor Joshua had to wait for all of his friends to die before he would cross over. Joshua experienced so much loss. Year after year, his friends died. Year after year, his family members died. But every year he was getting closer to the promise that God had for him. It'd be so easy to be Joshua and say, I give up. I've experienced too much loss. It's too painful. I'm just going to park in the wilderness. But Joshua kept saying, God, stir up my faith. Get me to believe in things that are impossible. So what does Joshua do? He sends two spies into, into the promised land. Says to these two spies, you go figure out what's going into the promised land. So these spies, they sneak into the promised land, and the king of Jericho, he finds out they're spies, so he's like looking for them. And where does God hide these two spies? He hides them on the roof of a prostitute's house. Who in the world would expect that? That's what God does. He hit him on the roof of a prostitute's house. Why did he do that? Because God loves Rahab. And God wanted to see salvation come to her house, into her family's house. That was an evangelistic thrust that God sent spies into the land to find Rahab. 
because her heart was open to the things that God and Rahab said, I'll hide you, but will you protect me? And they said, yeah, pack your little apartment with every single friend and every single family member you have. And when we come and we take Jericho, everybody in your household will be safe. And that's exactly what happened. After those spies left, Rahab told every single one of her friends and family, says, pack into my apartment because God's going to do something wonderful for us. So those spies, they go back to, they go back to Joshua and they say to Joshua, he said, the Lord's going to give us this whole land, they said, for the people of that land are terrified. That would be such good news for Joshua to hear. Yeah, we're going to get in the land. See, it's especially good news for Joshua because the day before, he told the Israelites we're going to take the land. See, Joshua didn't have to send the spies into the land to, 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 to build up his faith. He already knew what God had said, but he sent the spies in afterwards because I believe it was a missionary thrust to get as many people as that land saved. So the next morning, the Israelites wake up, and they're going to cross over. So the Israelites, they, uh, Joshua says, we're going to break down camp, and now we're going to move down to get closer to the river. So they had about a two- or three-mile walk to get to that river. It's kind of a smooth, nice little walk that they would have to go to the river. And they get to the river, and they're going to set up their camp by nighttime, they'll probably have a nice little barbecue and just enjoy things. But when they get to the side of the Jordan River, what they see is their worst nightmare. See, they're remembering the Jordan River thinking, that won't be too hard to cross. It would actually probably be about the size of the Grand River. You go downtown, you stand on one side, easily see the other. And you got a million people. It won't be too hard to figure out how to knock some trees down, throw them in there, and make a makeshift bridge. Not a big deal. But when Joshua and the Israelites got down to the side of the Jordan River, remember how it said in verse 15, it was a harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. See, the Jordan River swelled from just a little river like downtown Grand Rapids and suddenly the river's a mile wide. And the water's probably 12, 14, 15, 16 feet deep and they say the current was probably going at 40 miles per hour. There's no way you're going to swim across that. There's no way you're going to get a million people and their dogs and their cats and their goats and the sheep and the grandmas and the grandpas. You're not going to get those people across. And once again, the Israelites are standing on the side of the river and they're probably thinking, that's impossible. Oh, to make matters worse. Remember in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said on the sides of the bank of the river was thick with thickets. So not only do they have to cross the river, but they're going to cross through a little bit of a jungle to even to get to the river. So this is a scene for the Israelites. Their whole life they grew up thinking, someday we're going to cross over to the promised land. And they're days away. Joshua's already told them, yep, we're all going to cross. And they're standing by the side of the river and they're thinking, that's absolutely impossible. And I bet they're all thinking, why did God bring us down here? Why? It hurts even more to see something that seems impossible. I'm sure there's a lot of grumbling and complaining. I bet most of the Israelites went to bed that night thinking, we will never cross over. I bet most of them went to bed that night thinking, why did we expect anything to change in our family line? My, this has happened to my grandfather. This happened to my parents. Why should I expect my life to be different from anybody else's? 
I bet a lot of people went to bed that night thinking, why did we ever think we could get out of our old situation? So here the Israelites are all on the side of the river thinking, it's going to happen again. We're not going to get across. How many times have you looked at obstacles in your life and you're like, I thought maybe this time we would cross, but maybe not. How many of you had a difficulty in your life and you don't get over it and time goes by, you try again, maybe I'll get over it this time. You don't do it and you just keep walking to the edge of the river and you get intimidated and you walk back and go to the wilderness. It's exactly what's happening to the Israelites. See, it's times like these we have to ask ourselves the question, do we walk by sight or do we walk by faith? Do we walk by our perspective or do we walk by the promises of God? And we have to ask the question, do we really believe that God can do the impossible? And that's why the book of Joshua is so relative to each of our lives and to this country right now and the nations of the world as we're dealing with COVID and you're looking at it thinking, it's impossible for anything good to come out of this. It's impossible to think I ever can break free, free from this. See, the book of Joshua reminds us it's not about human strategy. It's not about human logic. It's not about human reasoning. It's by the power of God. Because if you're standing on the Jordan River, there's only one way you can get across. It's the power of God. See, we need to grasp the book of Joshua as a church and a community. As I told you, our three goals for this community this year is number one, we understand our spiritual gifts and we use our spiritual gifts. And the second thing is that we understand spiritual formation and our discipleship to Jesus. And the third thing is that we understand spiritual conflict and know how to deal with spiritual conflict. And if those voices of that inner critic are speaking louder than our faith, then we're going to believe that those spiritual gifts really don't apply to me. Or how could I expect to be prophetic? I'm not good enough. Or we think, how could I ever expect to have a life of devotion to Jesus? I'm not good at doing devotions. I'm not good at getting up and doing prayer. Or we say, how would I overcome any spiritual conflicts? I'm not good enough. That's why we need to address the obstacles in our life so we can walk into the promised land that God has for us so we can use our spiritual gifts and be devoted to God and expect victory every time we come into spiritual conflict. So we need to address what are the raging rivers in our life that make us turn around and head back to the wilderness, that get us to doubt that anything good could come out of our life. So the third chapter of Joshua shows us three things that the Israelites had to do. First thing that they had to do was they had to go where Jesus goes. Joshua 3 verse 2 says, When you see the Levitical priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow. See, the first commandment for the Israelites is simply follow that Ark of the Covenant. See, now I love these instructions because there's two details. Number one, it says stay a mile, it says stay a half mile back. Now, why do they want them to stay a half mile back? Because God wanted every single Israelite to be able to see the Ark of the Covenant. 
If every, the, the first people in line crowded right next to the Ark of Covenant, the people in the back would have never saw the Ark. And God in his goodness says, I want everybody to see the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want anybody to miss it. So I'm going to put it on display for every single person to see it. And the second reason God wanted it visible, because he said to the people, you're going to go a different route than you've ever gone before in your life. I'm going to do something different in your life, and you have to see where I'm leading you. See, there's such a temptation in our life to think, well, God's did it this way before. I expect he's going to do it the same way. Now, if those Israelites heard the stories from grandpa and grandma, they probably thought, oh, we're standing on the side of the Jordan River. God would do the same thing when they cross the Red Sea. He's going to send a big wind. Let's wait for it to get windy. But God wasn't going to do that this time. So God said, you got to be able to see me. you got to see where I'm doing so you can follow me because if those Israelites expected a big wind, they never, ever would have got across. So God in his goodness says, I want you to see the ark. See, for so many people, when we read the story, we think the river is the theme of Joshua 3. It's not. The theme of Joshua 3 is the Ark of the Covenant. 21 times in Joshua 3 and 4, it refers to the Ark of the Covenant. The story's trying to draw you to the Ark. But so often what we see is the river. We see the challenge. We see the obstacle, and we're so focused on that. And God's saying, I want you to follow the ark because the ark is so important. See, the ark is a picture of Jesus. The ark of the covenant is Jesus. See, when you look inside of the ark of the covenant, you're going to find three things that are incredibly strategic. And they speak of who Jesus is. See, the first thing in the ark was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represented God's will for his people. And they represented God's desire to have a relationship with his people. The second thing in the ark was a pot of manna. Remember, that's the food that God provided for the Israelites for the 40 years in the wilderness. See, that food is a reminder of God's provision. And the third thing in the ark was Aaron's rod. Remember Aaron, Moses' brother, his old rod, that piece of wood. Back in Numbers, the story, number 17, there was a story of Aaron's rod just sitting in the corner, and out of it grew leaves and almonds. Just another sign that God will provide, and God has miraculous power to do whatever you need from him. So inside of that Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus, of his love and his power and his provision. And that's what God's saying. When you're standing by the river, look at Jesus because he is your source of power. He's your source of provision. And he is your source of love and a relationship with him. But even more than that, there's more than what's inside the box. On top of the box was called the mercy seat. On top of everything else is God's love and compassion and his grace and his mercy. That's why the Ark of the Covenant is God with us. And so for the Israelites, focus on the Ark. Focus on grace and mercy and power and love and provision. 
So all of Israel, they're camped. So all of Israel now, they're watching. They're watching. They're half a mile away, and they're watching what's going to happen. And suddenly they see what's going to happen. The priests start walking, and they walk right into the river. The river's raging, 40 miles per hour. And the priests just walk right in and get ankle deep. And then they stand there. And they're waiting. Where am I in my notes? I have no idea. Oh yeah, the first thing you do is you go where Jesus went. And so there are the priests. They're standing there and their ankles deep. The second thing that we have to do is we have to dedicate ourselves to Jesus. See, in Joshua 3, verse 5, there's the instruction, then Joshua told the people, purify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord would do a great wonder among you. See, it's really good to follow Jesus, but also there's the instruction, purify yourself. Some of the oldest translations will say, consecrate yourself. I love this phrase because it says, tomorrow the Lord would do wonders, plural. He's going to do multiple things for you. See, the whole idea of consecrating yourself or dedicating yourself to the Lord was to make you separate, to set you apart from the ordinary. And that was God's instruction to the Israelites. So how do you do that? I think we know the first thing you do is there's that repentance of sin. You ask God to forgive your sins and you get real introspective and God forgive my sins. Then you also meditate on the word of God. That's one of the best ways that you can overcome those voices in your head, those tapes in your head that like to remind you of your past. See, the whole purpose of biblical meditation is to put God at the center of your life and remind you of what God says about you. It's kind of a way that you can escape from those tapes that are playing in your head to meditate on the Word of God. See, to meditate is about an active re-speaking of God's Word into your life. That's what it means to meditate, just re-speaking what does God's word say. Because so often we got that tape, we got those gears going in our head of, you'll never get across. Your family didn't get across, why should you expect to get across? Once again, you're going to be disappointed. That's where we meditate on the word of God and remind ourselves the promise that God gave to Joshua the promises that he gave for us. But then there's a third, this third part is we need to consecrate ourselves to God. We need to dedicate ourselves to God. And this is part of, what's part, part of becoming a Christian, following Jesus, is you dedicate yourself to God, you dedicate yourself to service for God. But it's interesting word, consecrate. Because the Levites are now standing out there in the water, they're ankle deep in the water, and they're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. But before they went in there, God was telling all the Israelites, consecrate yourself, dedicate yourself to God. Now, some of you remember from the book of Numbers that when the priests became priests, when they went through their ordination service, they had to do three main things to consecrate themselves to God. The first thing that they had to do was they had to go in these ceremonial waters and take a bath. Kind of get that, get really cleaned up. Then they also had to put on brand new clothes. Kind of get that. But in the middle, there's a step that we look at and think, that's a little funky. That's a little weird. They had to shave off all of their hair from head to toe. We're talking all your hair. Not some of it, all your hair. 
That was the priest's initiation into the priesthood. They did that at 25 years old. And you're like, why would you do that? It seems a little like stuff. So I'll take a bath. I'll put on new clothes. But more than just shave your head and shave your beard, that's what God told them to do. And I read that. And I thought, now, why in the world would you make them do that? Was it just seen as kind of like a dare? If you dare do it, then he could be a Levite. But see, it's interesting if you look at what was the requirements that a leper had to go through to get cleansed. Remember in the Old Testament, the leper was considered the biggest sinner of all sinners. If you had leprosy, you were the worst possible sinner. For a leper to go through the cleansing process, they did the exact same ritual as the Levite did to become a servant and to work in the temple the exact same thing. They had to take a bath to get cleansed. They had to shave off all of their hair and they had to put on brand new clothes. The exact same thing for a leper to be, had to go through as a Levite went through. Because we know in the New Testament we're the priesthood of believers. In the New Testament we're the Levites. We're the priests and kings. We've gone through that purification process with our relationship with the Lord. But see, it was so key that those lepers shaved off every piece of hair on their body. Because the Old Testament, they, what they believed was, you know, for those leprosy, that, that leprosy gets on your skin. It gets on your hair. It might be stuck for life. So how do you get rid of it? You shave it off. The old rabbis would say, you cut off anything from your body that might be left as a seed that could regerminate and cause you to relapse. So they would cleanse themselves. They would shave off all of their hair on their arms and their legs and their head and their back. So they could be purified, the lepers would do. Then they would go live in isolation for seven days. Seven days later, they'd take a bath, shave their hair once again, and then they would put on new clothes and they would be presented as clean. See, the, the priests are doing the same thing. It's kind of a picture of what God is, not these asking you to shave your whole body, but what the process you go through saying, God, would you cut off from me anything that could be defiling? Would you cut off anything that's on my life that could cause me to relapse? That's what it means to consecrate. Not only do you ask God to forgiveness, but you ask God that he would transform you and remove anything that could cause you to stumble or to fall or to relapse, that transformation process that you ask God to do, that's so often missing. We're good at confessing sins. Sometimes we're good at reading the Bible, but we forget to say, God, I need to be transformed, that my skin would become smooth so nothing would be able to attach to me and nothing would cause me to stumble. That's what God is saying to the Israelites. Because if you're going to be bold and be strong like Joshua and you're going to stand in the river in faith, you better make sure that nothing is going to cause you to relapse. And the third thing that God says to the Israelites is this in verse 7. He says, today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of the Israelites. They will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan, take a few steps and stop. That was brave for those priests to step into the river and step out to their ankles 
And then he said, stop. Now you might remember earlier in Joshua, it said when they step into the river, the water will stop. Problem is, the river stopped 20 miles upstream. It was going to be a while before those priests saw the river actually stopped. We all experience that in our life. We think, but God, you told me. God, you said. Yeah, he stopped the river 20 miles up. It might be an hour or two or three before you're actually going to see the results. And those priests had to stand in faith saying, all right, God, I know I heard what you said to do. I'm going to stand here and I'm just going to wait. And they waited. And that's how they got across the river. Yeah. That is so easy to do. You get to the place, you're finally steps away. And you think, I've waited too long. God didn't do it. I'll just go back home. God did it. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet. Jesus has given us every single thing we need. It was accomplished on the cross. It was accomplished 2,000 years ago. Everything we need to be successful, to be fruitful, to live in peace and joy has been accomplished for us. We just haven't seen it yet. But for now, we can stand in the river. We can stand there with the confidence that God will do what he promised that he is going to do. And all of us need to stand in that faith right now. Because each of us has a river we need to cross over. Each of us have an obstacle in our life. It might, be, it might be your marriage, it could be your family, it could be your finances, it could be sexual, it could be whatever it is. You're standing and you're looking at that obstacle thinking there is no way I'm going to get across that. And could it be that God is saying, yeah, you will. Just step out. Take a couple steps and stand there and just wait. Because everything you need has been done. The river, I'll give it a couple hours. I can't figure out how long it takes the river to drain. I can't find that fact. I'd say three hours. Maybe it's a day. That would have been better. But see, for all of us, we have an obstacle. I think we just need to step up and just take a leap, step forward. Say, God, I trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to stand firm. Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's a job problem. Maybe it's a finance problem. Maybe it's an addiction problem. Maybe it's something you do in secret that nobody else knows. You just step in faith and say, God, I'm going to step in and I'm going to believe that you are going to get me across. But I will confess my sins. I'll dedicate myself to you. And I'll do what you're asking me to do. I think that's, that's, that makes me excited. That makes me excited what God wants to do for us. That he wants to bring us into a land of freedom. That he wants to bring us into a, a land where he's just taking care of us and we have full trust and confidence in him. I want to pray over you from the words of Paul in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, So I kneel humbly in awe before the Father, our Lord Jesus Messiah, 
the perfect father of every father and child in heaven and on earth. And I pray that he would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favor until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. God, I pray that for each person listening to me today, that you would unveil to them the unlimited riches of your glory and favor until supernatural strength floods their innermost being with your divine might and explosive power. God, I pray today that each of us would be a recipient of your divine might and explosive power. That, Lord, you would pour so much love into each of us, Lord, that we would pour it out on the community that we interact this week. God, may we, would you use us this week to see the lost come to a relationship with you? God, I pray that you'd use us this week as evangelists. God, would you put us in touch with the Rahabs this week? May we see people enter the kingdom of God through the efforts of Lake Effect Church this week. And I love how Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all of this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wild imagination. He will outdo them all for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. God, I thank you this week that you are going to energize us. I thank you this week that, Lord, you are going to move us in places and positions that we never thought or expected. God, we do pray that we would walk in your confidence this week. God, I'm asking for strategic and divine appointments that you would put us in contact with the Rahabs of this world so we can speak truth and love to the people that you want to bring into your kingdom. God, would you pour out on us an evangelistic heart, an evangelistic ability in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.